As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show's world-famous weekend review. On this episode, we're looking back on a weekend where it was proven that the only people in Washington to get anything meaningful done are on their women's soccer team. Am I right, politics? Where Manchester United violently upended our plans to not talk about Manchester United this week. <laughs> where Jurgen Klopp showed the way to make your team wake up is to start a fight with the opposing manager. Where Barcelona had a new manager and stayed true to their roots, scraping a win with questionable performances and where MLS playoffs brought us unbridled joy unless you were one of the away teams. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who, much like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is getting some well-deserved time off this week. Taylor Rockwell's time off coming due to some pilgrim performances and Ollie's due to some grim performances, Taylor. I thought you were like firing me live on air. I was like, wow, that's that that's that's not the way I wanted this to go. I also wanted a cushy sit down interview in which I was asked softball questions about how good of a job I did before being sacked. Uh, But in lieu of that, yeah, I'll take I'll take some turkey in a few days off. I'm excited for the end of the week for sure. I'm glad you are, Taylor. Maybe Ollie's less excited about the week ahead of him. Uh, we're going to so. get to the news about him. And listener, I apologize. We did vow not to talk about Manchester United this <laughs> week, but they keep pulling us back in, don't they? They keep doing it. And yeah, Taylor, that um, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer, when he was relieved of his duties this weekend, uh, Manchester United going on the PR assault on mm. their socials, uh, posting an interview, uh, a, a goodbye, a farewell interview, I think they called it, Taylor, um, which is an interesting PR move for literally that company sacking that employee and then saying, here, do an interview. Um, But also, if you watch it, it's pretty good. It's pretty honorable. And I think I've got a lot of respect for Oli for actually doing it too. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad for him in the sense that it seems like every major football writer had their Ole out column ready to go and had Mm. sort of just been updating the details so that when the news was official... Maybe it required Manchester United doing something to try to get out ahead of it and try to build the narrative or bend the narrative such that they could. But I think most of the pieces have been about how it was time, it needed to happen, it's a sad thing, but Manchester United's sort of a sad thing itself. 
More on that sad thing later, listener. Yeah. But you can't wait. Also joining Taylor and I is a man who has kindly taken time away from praying to his Billy Gilmore shrine <laughs> to chat about non-Billy Gilmore-related soccer news. Graham Ruthven, hello. Well, hello. Well, it's actually a voodoo doll of Daniel Farka uh, that oh. I've been sticking needles into. But yes, Billy Gilmore <laughs> is back um, and he's playing well. And I, that makes me happy. I was picturing, Graham, your Billy Gilmore shrine. I don't know if you've seen Alan Partridge where he's got that super fan. I was picturing maybe you'd made like a Gilmore mannequin and put him on like a, a Game of Thrones style throne, but it's made of iron brew cans. And uh, you sort of pray to it every night. Is that is that accurate? Well, there's, that, yeah, there's this weird thing in Scottish football where a lot of Rangers fans had Stephen Gerrard cutouts, cardboard cutouts for some reason. And yeah. it, it was a trend after he left the club that they were filming themselves punching him in half or giving him a fake funeral in their garden so yeah I've, I've just got one of those for for billy gilmore a cardboard cutout well you live in glasgow graham presumably the, the streets are littered with uh stephen gerrard cutouts how many do you have in your possession now <laughs> yeah i could just uh kind of create you know how during the covid pandemic people were putting like fake fans in the stands you just do that but with all <laughs> stephen gerrard cardboard cutouts <laughs> Oh, lots of the same man with a very low hairline in your stance. It's so low. It's so, it's so low. I'm kind of envious. That's another story. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about today, gentlemen. Lots of uh, new managers and big results in the Premier League. Uh, A managerial change. At Manchester United, as we mentioned already, Barcelona's new era. We've got MLS Cup playoffs. But we start, gents, in Louisville, Kentucky, the NWSL final, the conclusion of the ninth NWSL season. A slightly tumultuous season, of course, for the um, COVID-related reasons and the off-field harassment cases which have come up. Uh, This game, though, Taylor, really good to see on CBS, on free-to-air CBS, mm-hmm. I should say. Uh, Washington Spirit coming out 2-1 winners over the Chicago Red Stars. This is the Spirit's first league championship. A tough one, Taylor, for Chicago in their third straight championship game. Around 1 a.m. on Sunday night, Coach Roy Dames uh, stepping down their coach since 2011. Your thoughts on this game, Tay-Tay? Uh, I thought it was a, a pretty fun game, and I thought the coverage did a really good job of reflecting the tumultuous season, as you mentioned, Ryan, especially the way I think it was framed as when the Spirit ended up getting the win, which they did in extra time, framed as sort of a victory for the players, but maybe not the club. Still a lot of frustration with uh, Steve Baldwin, the owner of the Washington Spirit, for everything that happened with former manager Richie Burke. The since fired and replaced manager of the spirit who had lots of allegations against him for a lot of bad things, all of which was sort of swept under the rug, um, like midway through the season or a little bit towards the end of the season. And so I think for the spirit to come out and get this win shows their resolve, shows their sort of fighting spirit. And I think the way they ended up getting the win in overtime after sort of battling through a pretty physical game, I don't think the spirit necessarily wanted it to be that physical. I think that was part of uh, how Chicago kind of set up to disrupt what the spirit wanted to do. But in the end, I think uh, deserved winners for me. Graham, your thoughts on this one? Uh, NWSL, not the easiest league to watch from Europe, as you are distinctly yeah. aware, but um, a fun game here, a fun championship game. And there was one particular standout star on the spirit, was there not? There was indeed. So yeah, the full disclaimer is I, I didn't watch this game live because it's not shown in the UK, um, but I did manage to catch the extended highlights and the player that that really stood out and reading all the, the post-match analysis, they, they seem to agree it was Trinity Rodman. Um, everything seemed to be flowing through her, not just flowing through her, but she was the one doing the damage as well with her attacking 
output and it seemed to me that she she just got more and more effective as as the match progressed she she struck the post with an incredible shot which was yeah. quite frankly ridiculous it was so far out it it struck with so much power that it almost breaks the post in two and um yeah pretty much deserved the goal to be honest that that strike it was it was incredible but yeah she she struck the post she then obviously sets up the winner with a, an, an amazing cross to the back post for O'Hara and um it just seemed like the spirit were in, in the second half did a much better job of of getting her into space getting Rodman into space and and that was really when Chicago started to experience some issues obviously up until then their defensive shape and structure had been pretty strong um as they're renowned for but once Rodman started to control things, and once she got space, it you got the sense that the spirit were probably going to find a winner. Yeah, I think so. We've got to give credit, Taylor, to to Chicago here. Lots mm-hmm. of players not available. Julia, it's not available. Casey Kruger, Alison Nea, um, Mary Pugh went out. Um, was it halftime? I think she went out in this one. Um, so yep. get, with those factors considered, um, it was a good performance. But I think the spirit probably had the better in the balance of play. Yeah, DiBernardo also going off due to injury uh, pretty early on. So, yeah, I think it was kind of stacked against Chicago, but Spirit still had to find a way to get the result. And I think it's absolutely to their credit. I think uh, Graham is right to call out Trinity Rodman for the performance she had. I thought she was sort of comprehensively unpredictable, that sometimes she would take people on and try to beat them with speed. Sometimes she was beating people with skill. Sometimes she was shooting from 30 yards out. Other times she was crossing from angles that you didn't expect. And I thought, really, she just kind of made sure that Chicago never got entirely comfortable, including how often she switched with uh, McKeown, the other sort of uh, winger in that 4-2-3-1. Sometimes it was Rodman on the left, sometimes it was on the right, sometimes it was both on the left, and I think they really did a good job of disorganizing and unbalancing Chicago. Uh, Rodman, I agree with Graham, definitely deserved a goal, but gets the assist, and it's a great ball to the back post for Kelly O'Hara to head in for her first goal of the season to Mm. get the win, so I think she'll probably content herself with uh, that level of silverware. There was, there was a pass in the second half where Rodman, who has, as you say that Taylor, she's, she's been dribbling up the left side, she's been crossing, she's been shooting from range, and then there was this brilliant little reverse pass through and behind. I can't remember who it is that has the shot, but it's into the side netting. And at that point, you think to yourself, wow, she, she actually is just doing everything. Like she, she has absolutely everything in her arsenal that she can do everything that I just said, you know, dribble, shoot from range, cross, but also just has that guile to, to play that little pass in behind. And she gets she gets absolutely crushed uh, very late in the second half. I thought it was going to be maybe a card. On replay, it looked like maybe it was an intentional sort of body check, but uh, no call given. I think just a quick conversation with the official, but Robin pops back up. Mackenzie Donza continues to play, but Robin, I thought, would be at least evaluated for a concussion, concussion or require some treatment, but she continued on. And I think also worth noting, I believe she plays the ball in that leads to the penalty, that leads to the the, uh, the penalty goal for Andy Sullivan. So Rodman getting two assists unofficially in my book. <laughs> unofficial assist? Could we list that yeah. one as maybe like an MLS unofficial assist? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that we've had that question before about should we account, should we count the player who earns a penalty as getting an assist. And I think if we do, we should also count the player who plays the ball in for the penalty as getting an assist as well. Oh, wow. That's Ronaldo padding his stats even more. If <laughs> <do that>. Definitely. <laughs> um, Graham, I think we had a, a, a slight difference of opinion off air with a couple of these goals. The, um, you know, Rachel Hill's head, header at the back for the, for the opener. Um, yeah, that, that was all good. But the, the penalty, mm. what do we make of the penalty attempt and the goalkeeping therein? Yeah, so I can I can understand why the the instinct is to think that the goalkeeper should save that. Um, obviously the ball goes goes underneath Miller, um, Sullivan um, taking taking the the penalty. But I think 
I think the keeper, it's one of those ones where the keeper anticipates, you know, she makes, she starts off making the save, it's making the dive, sorry, and kind of like at full stretch, but then the shot is slightly underneath her. And I just think that makes it really difficult for um, Miller to send her hands back down kind of into her body to make the save i I think Mm -hmm. it's just a very awkward one and so i do have some some sympathy even though i do understand why on first viewing it it does look like a little bit of a a goalkeeping error yeah you'll get an argument i agree with graham because i think if you're going to take a penalty i think for me the two rules would be uh hit it with power if you want to but if you're not going to hit it with power Put it on the ground because if you if you kind of lift it up a little bit, that is the ideal spot for a keeper to save. I think it's between like a foot off the ground and three feet off the ground is the perfect height for that diving sprawling save. If you're putting it on the ground, if that keeper leaves early, if they do dive, they make that big stretch. It can be difficult to then adjust midair to make sure that you're covering underneath. And I think that's exactly what happens here. So maybe a little bit fortuitous in the end, maybe a little bit too far over for Sullivan, but still in the back of the net. And I'm guessing she'll take it. Indeed, Taylor. Well, as we say, this was a championship win for the Washington Spirit. Um, Taylor, you know, it wasn't that long ago where there wasn't a professional women's league in, in the in the US. I say this is a ninth WNSL mm-hmm. NWSL season, excuse me. What did you make of this game as sort of a representation of where the women's game is? I mean, it was it was a it was a good game, right? It was entertaining, it was end to end, and there was plenty of action. We had a we had a star emerge in Trinity Rodman as Rodman mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and I think it's a game, as you mentioned, Ryan, where we don't have Ertz, we don't have Kruger, we don't have Nair. There are still proven internationals in there, like Gautreau and Tierna Davidson. Uh, but for the spirit who lost Mallory Pugh starting against them or traded away Mallory Pugh, don't have Rose Lavelle anymore, for them to sort of uh, get the title with... Certain, again, proven international talent in the form of Kelly O'Hara and Emily Sonnet, who I thought looked very good as a center back. Doesn't always look good as a fullback for the U.S. women's national team, but I see why people say maybe she should play center back. I thought Aubrey Bledsoe, uh, the goalkeeper for the spirit, NWSL goalkeeper of the year, had a strong performance. That it seemed like this team on the whole was a young team coming good, which has to be pretty exciting for spirit fans next season. Probably more exciting would be if they get new ownership in there and some new decision makers. But as long as they keep the team intact, I think those decision makers will be welcomed with open arms. And, and just talking about the spectacle, I thought having the this game at, at this stadium as well really was 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 a good thing because obviously this stadium in in in, in Louisville, where mm-hmm. Racing Louisville play, is primarily an NWSL stadium, so it's not an MLS stadium or a you know American football stadium or, or whatever. It is largely used and designed for NW, NWSL soccer. So good, to, good to that. Just to to me, that is a symbol of um, hopefully a growing league, and and that hopefully there can be more facilities like that in the women's game. And I got to say, my final note on this one was just I appreciated it because it's in Louisville somewhat easier for Chicago fans to get to than Spirit fans. But Spirit fans in attendance and when they were down uh, 1-0, I very much enjoyed the, I'm assuming, Spirit squadron uh, counting audibly every time the goalkeeper held the ball for longer than maybe two seconds. They would start <laughs> counting to kind of remind the official that that ball needed to be cleared after six seconds. So some good uh, fan presence as well. And I think a good game overall with a dramatic winner from Kelly O'Hara. Excuse my ignorance, Taylor. Spirit squadron is the name of the supporters club? I believe so. That's a wonderful name. Anything called Squadron <laughs> is, a, is a tick in my book, frankly. They're a rowdy bunch. We happen to be at the same bar as them for the uh, 2015 Women's World Cup final, and it was uh, pretty awesome. They made a sort of quiet suburban bar into a very raucous suburban bar. Did someone blow a conch shell and say, Squadron, assemble! And they all came and... <laughs> 
<laughs> that happened in. outside. That happened outside. Then they came inside. Excellent stuff. Well, congratulations to the spirit uh, and uh, the conclusion of an NWSL season, the ninth one indeed. When we come back after this break, we'll be talking Premier League. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's talk Premier League. Chelsea still top of the pile with a comfortable win uh, over Leicester. 3-0, that one ended. Also ending 3-0, Manchester City against Everton. João Cancelo with the assist for Raheem Sterling in this one. Grant, did you see it? It was filthy. Yes, I did. It was it was incredible. I don't really have much else more to say. It was just <laughs> a sensational piece of skill and he just seems to be getting better and better for Man City, which is scary because he was already pretty good. He was indeed. Rodri getting an absolute banger in that game as well. Sunday evening, meanwhile, Antonio Conte getting his first win at Tottenham. 2-1 over Leeds United uh, in a comeback win there. Spurs booed off at half-time, Taylor, and they turned it around. Yay, Tottenham. Conte doing stuff. Uh, more to come, Taylor. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, I think so. And it, and it's a Leeds team that can be sort of opened up and uh, hit for several goals, but also can be very challenging, especially if you are a team in transition in the state of flux when you don't have the kind of discipline or tactical drilling that you might need. So I do think it ends up being a pretty uh, strong win. And if not like straight up rewards Spurs fans for what has been a bleak start to the season, that at the very least shows that things seem to be moving in the right direction. And there were moments in this one that reminded me of when Jurgen Klopp first took over at Liverpool. And you could just see in little bits and pieces when with Klopp at Liverpool, suddenly players were hunting in packs and maybe three players were closing down or maybe this space was being compressed laterally. And you could just see how even in just a week, he had started to have an impact. And I think Conte kind of inspiring that belief, inspiring that second half fight back. And I think also doing some smart things. Xavi did the same thing about who he brought on and when he brought them on and how he brought them on. And I think kind of showing that he has control of the team, but other players will be given opportunities if they earned them. Indeed. Tottenham need to need to stop tweeting so much about Conte though. T- t- tweeting pictures of him just yeah. for the sake of it. Like we know you're punching guys, just make it seem <laughs> like you deserve to have a manager of the standard of Antonio Conte. <laughs> He's a handsome man. He paid good money for that hair, Graham. So you know they should get some get some pictures out of him. In my opinion, that's true. Uh, talking of hair and hairline, Steven Gerrard uh, got his first win as Premier League manager. Aston Villa two, Brighton nil. Graham four points clear of the releg- relegation zone. Aston Villa now. Yeah, and I thought this was pretty much what I expected from Steven Gerrard's first match in charge of, of Aston Villa. I, I actually watched this this game live because I was so interested in how they would get on. So Brighton did have large spells of possession, but the biggest difference between Gerrard's team and Smith's team this season is that Villa looked really strong at the back. 
Villa fans should probably expect some defensive solidity to be a key part of um, Gerrard's time in charge. And it was interesting that he himself in the post-match interview, he was asked, you know, what did you think of that? And one of the first things he mentioned was he was clean. He was pleased with the clean sheet. And that was a, a, a real feature of his success at Rangers. And so I would envisage that that's one of the first things that he wants to achieve at Aston Villa is just getting that defence sorted out. And after he does that, maybe he'll start to look at some other things. But I think I thought it was an encouraging start for, for Villa under Gerrard. Yeah. Also encouraging uh, Norwich for Dean Smith in his first game, a uh, 2-1 win over Southampton. There was no players you're interested in in that game, was there, Graham? <laughs> I feel like I have a personal stake in Norwich now staying up, uh, <laughs> given the role that Gilmore's going to play in that team with uh, Farka gone. Yeah, he, he, was, he was very good. Um, Gilmore was man of the match um, and just played a, a key role for them. I think one of the most impressive things about Gilmore is that you can you can kind of drop him into any situation against any opponent and he will do his thing. It could be England at Wembley. It could be Southampton in this game. I remember he played a really impressive um, cup tie for Chelsea against Liverpool when Liverpool were like the best team in the country. And he, and he just kind of does the same thing in every match. And I just can't believe that Farka didn't see a role for him in this team because he makes such a difference to them. So... Yeah, I, I am now. Uh, I am now very much invested in Norwich staying up in the Premier League this season. Graham, I'm glad that you uh, you enjoyed Billy Gilmore's performance. Did you say you watched all or most of this game? Um, I watched the uh, match of the day highlights, which ah. are kind of extended highlights afterwards. I was just wondering not to put you on the spot, and it is fine for you to say no idea. Uh, but I saw Josh Sargent coming on at halftime for Todd Cantwell. Uh, did you see anything from Sargent, positive uh, or negative? No, I didn't see much from Sergeant. Yeah. I'd say he was he was in my notes. So in my notes, oh my. I've got winning goal was made in Scotland, a Gilmore cross for Grant Hanley to head home. You're welcome, Norwich. It's not like you're getting any help from America. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even tee him up for that one, and now I'm sad that I mentioned it. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't seem to do much, but he might have done just not in the highlighted moments. So not, you know what? I hope you get Italy. Him. I hope you get Italy and Portugal somehow in the playoff combined. I hope you get both of them at once. <laughs> Don't Graham. be like that. All right, settle down, fella. Settle down. Let's talk about Newcastle. Uh, no new manager bounces and Jameses, unlike those previous two games we discussed. Uh, Newcastle's only victory of the season remaining there against the odds Saudi buyout. A 3-3 draw against Brentford in Eddie Howe's first game in charge. Taylor, he wasn't present. COVID quarantine for Eddie Howe. So maybe he'll be back on the sidelines soon for a win. For uh, what Arsenal away? Uh, that 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 that's a rough one. That's a rough one to come back to. But then he's got Norwich, Burnley, Leicester, Liverpool. So you would assume that Norwich and Burnley would be the two that maybe Eddie Howe is targeting for that new manager bounce coming into effect to shield him from what will be difficult games against Leicester and Liverpool. I, I couldn't help but envisage uh, how in a hotel room somewhere in, in Newcastle trying to watch this match because it was the 3pm game in Britain, it wasn't on TV, and him trying to like find a stream and have it in battling all the pop-up all the wow. pop-up adverts. No, I don't want to find hot girls in my area. Click <laughs> off. <laughs> or maybe he maybe he did click that link and that's why he wasn't yeah. able to watch as much of the game. Maybe that's why we won't see such a bounce. And I will say, Newcastle... I didn't really realize what comes after that because uh, there's Leicester, there's Liverpool, then there's Man City, then, then there's Man United, so that's a winnable one. But then Everton away, Southampton at home, Watford uh, to round it out. It's going to be a tough run for Newcastle. That takes them into mid-January. Do you all think that with 
this Audi takeover with the money theoretically on offer, that they will be able to bring in some fairly big name talent. Like I always go back to Man City. I really wanted to make that statement and bringing in Robinho. Do you think there will be an emphasis on that? Or do you think this will be more of a sustainable build? If we get relegated, we'll be right back up sort of performance from Newcastle in the second half of the season. I, I personally think they're going to go for big name loans, I think will mm. be their strategy, oh. where they go to clubs and say, right, we'll give you £5 million for six months. And then the player is protected that if they go down, they're not sticking around. That but I, I could see like Coutinho ending up there on loan from Barcelona and Barcelona yeah. banking a, like a £5 million loan fee. I think that might be quite a fruitful route for them. Donny van de Beek, maybe answer. get some action, someone like that. <laughs> well, he's no. been reborn now. We can dream. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, um, there has been some rebirth, or there will be some rebirth at Manchester United. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about Oli. Uh, well, we're going to talk about Liverpool Arsenal, actually. But first, we're going to get to Oli Gunnar Solskjaer and the news of his departure from Manchester United after Man United's pretty terrible 4-1 loss to Watford, <laughs> which was the final straw for him. I mean, there were lots of final straws, Taylor. There was a big yeah. box of straws, and this was the last one for Oli, I guess. It it had become almost comedy in the sense that it felt like he was trying to see what he had to do to get fired. Because after the he's got three games to prove himself and those three games were a win against the Spurs team that immediately sacked their manager and then what a draw and a loss, I think um, that wasn't the most resounding of responses. And it certainly hasn't been since then. I I was sort of confused yesterday to see all of the many, many, many posts from former players and current players about how good of a job he had done and how much they enjoyed their time with him and how they would never forget it. And yet at the same time, their performance on the pitch did not tell me that the players were playing for him. It did not feel like they were motivated or willing to fight through. It felt like sort of they saw the writing on the wall. They had been sort of maybe performing past what had been in the training, in the match prep and in this game if not gave up, then just sort of stop putting in that extra effort and let the tactics or lack thereof speak for themselves. Michael Carrick now in charge. Uh, has been a first-team coach since 2018. Never managed a first-team of any kind, no, Graham. That sounds like it's a recipe for success for the rest of the season. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got a new interim manager to replace the last interim manager before a new interim manager is appointment. It's not exactly the illustration... Of a, of a club that has a plan, is it? And I think this just, this is an episode that encapsulates the, the incompetence of the people running that club. I mean, did anyone really believe that things were going to turn around after, well, really after the Liverpool game? That seemed like the yeah. things that it was really over at that point. But even still, after the City game, you know, United had two weeks, the, the final international break of the year to make a change. Clubs like Villa and Norwich and Newcastle, I guess, saw that opportunity, but somehow, Spurs. Manchester United didn't, and now they've got. I saw a, a, someone write that it was they've got now got eleven games in forty three days, um, yeah. and they don't have a plan for who for who they're who they're going for. And going on the reports, it seems like they might luck out a little bit, and that Pochettino is it's believed that he might force him force his way out of PSG. But my net, that's not my net's plan. If that happens, it'll be because it's just landed on their lap. Um, so yeah, just I, I think. Um, this whole thing reflects poorly on Manchester United as a club. I thought in the summer maybe they had made some changes. They seem to have made some good hires. They seem to have appointed a lot of uh, data analysts. But in terms of the people at the top making the decisions, it's just the same old rubbish, frankly. Yeah, and I think the 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 even more frustrating thing for me as a fan is that like I don't even know who the person is who's making that choice because Ed Woodward is still there. My uh, goodness. He's, 
is yeah, of course, <laughs> is theoretically leaving very soon slash maybe in January, but there seems to be no official end date for his tenure in charge. And I think a big reason why Ole was given so long to turn things around and why they didn't want to take decisive action is because if Woodward steps away at the end of December, beginning of January, I think he wanted it to be whomever comes in. It's their choice what to do with Ole. I can then sort of hang my head or hold my head high and say it was this negative situation. I found a way to turn it around. I got the results and I'm sorry that it didn't work out after I left. But here we are now where he basically... Uh, has fired his fourth manager uh, of his tenure, David Moyes, Lee Van Hall, Jose Mourinho. Uh, and that is, I, I could not believe this number. It has only been eight years since Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. It feels like 20. And so for four permanent managers in eight years to be where they are right now, I think I would love to believe, Ryan, I think you began this by saying a bit of rebirth. I don't think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see Michael Carrick in charge. Maybe somebody else does. And as Graham said, I think that that's fortuitous, not planned. And I think that's sort of the way they've been so far. Maybe you bring in somebody with more of a long-term vision and that does bring about some change. But it does not feel like things are going to run particularly smoothly uh, for Michael Carrick and the rest of the club for the next couple months. Taylor, I've just realized something. Manchester what? United are a Fast and Furious movie. This is mm-hmm. the fifth reboot, and it just gets more ridiculous every time. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is weird that when Ole was first hired, his whole plan was just to steal DVDs from trucks, and now they are committing like international espionage on a James Bond level. So that yeah. does feel... That does feel sort of appropriate. They're all also sort of put into their contracts about how they don't have to compete against each other. They don't have to fight if they don't want to. They always get to win. I think that was put into their contracts, and then they didn't yeah. realize they had to back that up with actual performances. So, so Graham, who's, who do you think is going to put the car into space then for the fifth reboot? <laughs> there's, there's talk of Zinedine Zidane. There's talk of Maurizio Pochettino. Uh, the Athletic tweeting that they understand that uh, former United captain Steve Bruce could uh, be in in for the role. They, oh, uh, they boy. Believe, he believes he could help stabilize the dressing room. Bless him, Graham. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm sure he, I'm sure he does believe that. I just hope for my United's sake that nobody at Old Trafford believes that. <laughs> um, I, this, I wasn't sure when, when, it, when the news came through that he was sacked. I had no, I had no idea. And I think Manchester United have no idea. Hence, their, in their statement, them confirming they were going to hire a, an, an interim manager till the end of the season. Um, they don't really have a plan now. Now it seems like maybe the, the momentum is with Pochettino, whether it's now or at the end of the season. Seems like it seems like that has been destiny for Pochettino for a while. And if it's possible, I think United will make it happen. But in terms of who I would go for as an ideal choice, it has to be a, a manager that resem- sorry that reflects a greater change at that club. And so if the United actually had. Um, ambition to really make fundamental change. I would be going to Ajax and I would be lifting just that whole front yep. office. I would be taking Van der Sar as the new chief executive. I'd be taking Ten Hag as the coach and I'd be taking Mark Overmars as the sporting director. That That is the solution, if you ask me. Not just a short-term solution, but a long-term solution. But I have absolutely no uh, no faith that United will do something like that. I think they'll just get... Yeah. A, a, a head coach and a manager and like Pochettino and look Pochettino might be successful he certainly seems like he would stand a better chance than, Sol- than Solskjaer but in terms of the long term I still think a lot of the issues are, are there at Old Trafford I think it's it's just Graham I think your your hesitation about where things are going to go is, is well founded because I like looking at the way things were heading into the international break the lack of response from the team the morale seeming to dip down players not performing well players being left out visible frustration with the fans I don't understand how Manchester United 
never came up with a plan for what happens next. And looking at the clubs that did make changes, Newcastle aside, Spurs, Villa, Norwich all make changes before the international break or just around the international break. All three of them get wins this weekend because I, I would say they made decisive action and gave those new managers some time to sort of bet in. And I don't get how Manchester United didn't see that that might be a necessary thing. I genuinely think that Liverpool, in the very, very unlikely event that Jurgen Klopp got into a fight with Mikel Arteta and said, you know what, I'm done, I'm burnt out. I believe that Liverpool have a plan in place for what they want to do when Klopp steps away, about who they're going to approach or what type of manager, what caliber of manager. as well. Exactly. I think that's a good, yeah, that is a fair point. But I think the best run clubs in the world all have these sort of plans in place for what happens next. And so there is some continuity from one manager to the next, from one squad to the next, from one director to the next. And I just don't think that exists with Manchester United. And I would say as a final point to this one, uh, Ian Wright on Match of the Day shouted out Carl Anka for him sort of going after Ole at times and pointing out that the lack of tactics did seem like it would be a problem. Like it seemed like a thing that might catch up, catch up to them once momentum and chemistry started to falter. And that is exactly where we are. So credit to Carl Anka, credit to Ian Wright, for shouting out Karlenka, less credit to Ed Woodward and Manchester United. Yeah, no credit for you, Man United. No credit. And and as you say, gents, this is this is a sign of bigger problems. And it? it's still an embarrassing organisation. It's still no long term strategy. It's still no looking beyond the end of their own noses. As you say, having a two week international break and other cl- other clubs dealt with their issues. Manchester United very much didn't. Oli is not the he's not the problem he's the side effect of the problem i suppose in some ways yeah but, uh, we've we've done enough talking about that why don't we talk about an yeah. actual game of soccer uh, in the premier league liverpool four arsenal nil arsenal no strangers to getting a hiding at anfield this was liverpool's sixth <laughs> successive home win over the gunners they scored at least three in each of those games yikes um there were goals here from Mane, yota sala and minamino and as i mentioned arteta and klopp uh they made some interesting communications with one other one another graham uh during the game which uh, seemed to inspire maybe the first goal. It didn't come that long afterwards. Yeah, up until that moment, I thought Arsenal had had, had been pretty good and it right. seemed to just awaken Anfield and, and awaken the Liverpool players. So I think it, it kind of backfired from Arteta. Maybe my reading of this was uh, is incorrect, but it seemed to be Arteta that was the instigator in that in that little flare-up. He seemed to be the anger of the, of, of the two. Um, I did find it a little bit unusual that he was so angry because while it it, it might have been a foul, it, it was um you know an, an elbow between two, into the head of of like another player. I, I didn't think it was. I mean, maybe you two think differently, but I didn't think it was that outrageous an incident. Maybe no. it was an accumulation of of incidents as as a whole. But yeah, it was a little bit of a peculiar flare up in Liverpool. From that moment, just seemed to. Um, accelerate and another heavy defeat for, for Arsenal at Anfield. Having said that, um, I do think there were some periods of, of this match where the approach from Arsenal seemed to be working. One of Arsenal's biggest problems in the past against Liverpool has been that their defensive players get isolated with the ball. And while they made mistakes, and oh boy, they made mistakes in this game, it, it didn't feel to me like there was that structural issue that there has been in the past. So I still see a team, look, this was undoubtedly a reality check for Arsenal, who have been in good form recently. Um, but I, st- I still see a team that is maybe more sure of their shape and their structure and what they are as a team than in, in previous times when they've gone to Arsenal. Despite the scoreline, I realise the scoreline is quite shocking. But I yeah. still saw little signs of encouragement for and Arsenal. That, that scoreline could have been a lot more were it not for Aaron Ramsdale as well, who who had a very good game in this uh, in this one. Taylor, 
Arteta, after the game, I'm quoting him here, they have been together six years, we haven't. That is the difference. I put it to you, Taylor, that there's a bit more difference than that. Yeah. Um, there's the yeah. tempo, there's the quality of the players, there's, you know, Liverpool's press was just, it was unplayable in the second half. The, the belief of that team seems to be a lot higher. And I think a lot of it for me, Taylor, is that Liverpool midfield had a lot of control and a lot of stability. Fabinho, uh, uh, Oxford Chamberlain was really good in this one, and Thiago. Yeah. They, they sort of, you know, were very, stabilized things and created chances for the front line. And I don't think Arsenal's midfield are a patch on that. No, and to his credit, Arteta did say that Arsenal were kind of victims of their own lack of ball security, that they kept giving Liverpool the momentum and they kept, and they effectively gave the game away uh, by conceding some of the goals the way they did and by giving possession away. And that is true that they could have done better, but it's also true that it was Liverpool making Arsenal uncomfortable, pressing them and then just being ruthless in the way they attacked. And I and I do sort of buy into the idea that that goes back to that sort of bust up, dust up, screaming match between Arteta and Klopp because I, I just find myself wondering, and maybe this is me being, I don't mean for this to be as hot takey as it might be, but do you remember the Troy Deeney comments about Watford a couple of years ago? Uh, which one specifically? The one basically just about how they uh, they lacked uh, cojones, I believe was his, oh, yeah, his yeah, phrasing, yeah, yeah. but just that they can sort of, you, he tries to go at them immediately. He tries to knock them around and see who will respond and see if he can sort of make them uh, sort of buckle under that pressure, shy away from the physical encounters. And I, and I think the other part of his quote that stood out to me was how once you do that, like they might back off and your fans pick it up from there. And that can always kind of get the team going. And that feels like what Klopp did in this on the day, because I do think he kind of crosses the, the divide between those touchline boxes. And maybe that's why Arteta was frustrated. I think he has some personal attacks about Arteta for calling for the foul the way he did. And from there, the crowd really does respond and you could see the intensity just ratchet up. And I think anytime you're playing Liverpool, you want to try to decrease, you want to let some of the air out of that intensity of Liverpool, not sort of ratchet it up and, and intensify it and let them go out and do what they want to do and sort of smash and grab and, and go at you and make you uncomfortable. And that's exactly what they did. So yeah. I do blame that or not blame that, but I just point to that as maybe a critical moment in what might have been a Liverpool victory otherwise, but certainly became a more comprehensive victory by the end. And and Ryan, you, you highlighted the, the Liverpool midfield there. I thought this was the maybe the best I've seen them this season as a unit. And I do wonder whether this is their best balanced trio in the centre of the pitch. One unexpected storyline of the Barclays this season has been the resurgence of Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Oxley right. who I'm pretty sure many maybe even Jurgen Klopp had forgotten was even still at Liverpool. It's been three and a half years since he's played 90 minutes in a Premier League match. Um, his injury track record is, is really as bad as anyone's in, in, in recent years. So it is easy to forget how effective he was for Liverpool for a spell when they were, they were at the, they were really starting to get good at the beginning under, under Klopp. And his recent form, and in this game, his performance here has been a reminder of that. And I thought he was excellent in this match. He gives Liverpool a bit of uh, drive and, and energy through the middle of the pitch. There, there's this growing trend of central midfielders who play, who sort of play with the urgency of a winger. So I think Jude Bellingham is, is uh, someone like that. Chouameni for Monaco and France is, is another one. And I think um, Oxley chamberlain was sort of the player, maybe the original player in this mould, where he was a winger to begin with, and now he plays central midfield. And I just think that that midfield with him in there is, is well, very well balanced. You have 
the you have Fabinho who offers kind of the protection in front of the back four and then you have Thiago who's the one who keeps things taking over and controlling possession and then as I say you have Oxley chamberlain who offers a bit of drive and mobility and links the midfield with the attack so yeah. it, he is you know that cliche of it's like a new signing with Oxley chamberlain it, it kind of is it, he is he has been the closest player to have replaced what Wijnaldum gave Liverpool what about um if you if you're putting this as um, Liverpool's primary midfield combo Graham Jordan Henderson yeah I know I know but I, I'm just basing on what I've seen of this midfield from yeah. Liverpool this season and this this trio was I think just they complement each other I think if Liverpool can get the best out of Thiago then they haven't really seen the best of Thiago so far and so if you can find a unit that gets the best out of him that just elevates everything so right. if that means sacrificing Henderson I know he's club captain I know he's you know England international and has been a key player for a number of years but the competition in that mid- midfield is so strong that maybe that is what's required and he can still play an important role as a you know as a rotation option and off the bench but yeah I, I liked what I saw from this unit in this well, game. That's a that's a greater point about Liverpool, I suppose, Grant. The depth they've showed here. There's a there's a feeling now that three teams are kind of breaking away in this Premier League. You know, Liverpool, Chelsea, and City. And Liverpool here. This was a demonstration for me of how deep they are. When you've got Simicus coming in at left back, and you know, uh, Morton came on for a little bit here as well, didn't he? And you've got someone like Jordan Henson who comes off the bench in this one, uh, and and Yotta playing up through the middle as well. It does seem like Graham they have plenty of options to keep them sustained for a season. And that's not something we've said about Liverpool in previous seasons. Yes, they have had the arguably the best starting eleven in the Premier League. Definitely the most consistent in terms of it's a starting eleven. You could go through all eleven players and, and name their their strongest side. But yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Now they now they have options. Simicast at left back is a big thing for me. Robertson. I still think he is their best left back, but he he has looked exhausted for periods of the, at the start of this season. And so having someone like Simicast come in and and do a good job is is really important. They've got maybe more midfield options than any other team in the Premier League. And you mentioned Jota there. I think we often overlook Jota because he's about, um, you know, Liverpool have about four players who are like him, but he's one of the most adaptable forwards in the Premier League. And I, I thought he was really excellent in this game as as the number nine. He can play as a lone front man or he can play as a part of a, part of a two. He offers aerial threat. He can dribble. He can beat a man. And then obviously his goal is put on a plate for him by a, a bad back pass from Nuno Tavares. But the composure he shows to sit the defender down and the goalkeeper down before finishing, I thought it was almost Fernando Torres, Torres-esque in the way he, he, he finished that off that, that goal. So basically the point I'm making is in all over the pitch, they do have options who can perform in a number of different ways. And as I say, we've, we've not always said that about Liverpool under Klopp. Right. That's a great shout, the Torres-esque style goal there from Yotta. I like that a lot, Graham. Uh, Taylor, did you like this a lot? Your uh, Liverpool um, having a standout performance, particularly in the second half, and your team not doing so hot? Oh, I mean, I, I think that's pretty much par for the course for the last eight <laughs> years or so. So it is what it is. I know. I, I mean, I think Liverpool are just, they are, from a neutral perspective, a very fun team to watch because mm-hmm. of how aggressive they are, because how much they will go at opponents and focus on that loose touch. And then once they win, it just seems like they flood numbers. They swarm everywhere. They're going to create chances. And if they win 4-0, chances are it probably could have been 6 or 7. That was certainly the case against Manchester United, and I feel like it was the case here against Arsenal. So, no, I mean, they're always fun to watch. It's just, yes, slightly painful at the same time. Indeed. Liverpool coming up against Porto this midweek as well. Then a home game against their uh, feeder club, Southampton. After that, (laughs) uh, gents, we're going to park the Premier League there for now. When we come back after this, let's head to Catalonia to check out how Mr. Xavi's doing. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back, listener. We are talking La Liga, Real Madrid. 1-4-1 at Granada to knock Sevilla off the top spot. Sevilla only managed a 2-2 draw with Alaves on Saturday. Second place, Real Sociedad can only draw 0-0 with Valencia. There was a win for Atletico Madrid over Osasuna. Felipe getting a late-headed goal there to do the trick for them. But Graham, why don't we take our attention to the Camp Nou. Barcelona 1, Espanyol 0 in the Barcelona derby. Xavi's opening assignment with Barca as manager. Quite a big event from the Barcelona derby. Um, Memphis Depay making the difference from the spot in this one. His seventh goal of the season. 74,000 fans in there too. They're creeping yeah. back in, getting back up to full capacity. Maybe uh, um, more more of the uh, socios showing up for Xavi in this one. Graham, your thoughts on Barcelona here? I've got to say, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too negative here. Uh, let me put, let me put this question to you, Graham. This, this was a mm-hmm. a, a scraped one 0 win, arguably, particularly for the last half an hour, twenty minutes for Barcelona. Here, didn't look too hot. They almost conceded several goals. If Kuman had been in charge of this game instead of Xavi, would he have been booed off? Um. 
Possibly, but I am definitely more positive about this Barcelona performance than I think you are. Okay. And I'll explain why. So, for me, Barcelona, in terms of what we expect a Barcelona team to be and how we expect them to play, they looked a bit more like Barcelona again. Even at this early stage, I think it's very clear to see that Xavi wants to return the club back to the values and the style of play that worked so well for them under specifically Pep Guardiola, which is obviously where he learned a lot about the game. Very possession heavy, almost at a walking pace at times. I had almost forgotten how how frequently Barcelona played at that pace under Guardiola, but seeing it again at the weekend there, it, my memory was jogged and I went, oh yeah, that, that happened a lot under Guardiola. Um, and there was a, a high press as well, right. which we ha- we just didn't see under Koeman at all. Two players, three players, sometimes even four players at times, chasing Espanyol, winning the ball back very quickly. And given that Xavi has only been in charge for two weeks, I thought Barcelona did a reasonably good job of executing this for the majority of the match. Then they got into the final 20 minutes and it was like their fitness levels dropped off a cliff. They were exhausted for the last 20 minutes and Espanyol had three golden opportunities to score. They, They... they should have taken something from this game for sure. They could have won this match given the quality of those three opportunities. They hit the they hit the woodwork twice in in, in the last ten minutes. I think uh, Raul de Thomas both times. RDT. Yeah, and despite that, despite that, I still think this is very encouraging for Barcelona because the only thing that stopped them from putting in a quintessential Barcelona performance was their was their fitness levels and I think that will come with time as they get used to the higher intensity under Xavi that will just naturally as they get used to having to press for the full 90 minutes they'll, they'll just their levels will instantly rise or not instantly but over time will rise and so I think it, that is all very encouraging um, and I think sorry to keep going on but another key difference between Coman's team and Xavi's in this match was Barcelona played with width again which yeah. I think is something that we underestimate as being important to Barcelona's trademark, trademark style, but they need players who stretch the pitch. And it was notable that uh, Elias Akomax, uh, who I, uh, disclaimer, hadn't heard of before this game, and Abde, who came on at halftime for him, they were the players who were brought into play on the right side. Barcelona really don't have an option on that right side, but their purpose is to stretch the pitch, and they're also looking to create in wide areas again, which we haven't seen that from Barcelona for a long time. So I think I can understand why you think they got a bit lucky in this game, Ryan, because Espanyol arguably had the better chances, but I do see signs of encouragement for Barcelona under Xavi. I agree with Graham entirely, because I think from kickoff, you see Barcelona in the 4-3-3 that uh, they, we have come to expect, but fans definitely wanted them to play some criticism of the way Kuman set up and some of the formations he utilized. But then even just in the build, you had your two center backs, you had the two fullbacks pushing alongside uh, Sergio Busquets. So suddenly it's a two, three, then the other uh, two central midfielders are just ahead. So the build out becomes like a two, three, two, three. And as Graham said, those wide attackers are uh, boots on chalk wide. And then that allows for Memphis to have to stretch the line or drop in to create space for Gavi and Elias or uh, Abdi, who I thought was excellent to either run into that space centrally or to make those runs down the channels. And the key thing for me was how often they created space for Jordi Alba to arrive late and create overloads. And I think inside the first 30 minutes, five or six times at least, they had the sort of cut back to the penalty spot or the top of the 18 from Jordi Alba, who arrived, created the overload, gets the ball, takes somebody on and gets that low ball in. And that felt like definitive Barcelona to me. I agree with Graham that this seems like a team that needed that bit of 
just a manager who's been there, who has the backing, who fans are on board for. So you don't have some of those lingering questions about, is this the way forward? Is this the inspiring manager we need? Seems like at least on the uh, evidence of those first maybe 70 minutes, uh, this is going to be a smart appointment. Then I think Graham is right. It's just about getting that fitness up and that belief up and sort of that ability to become this all-conquering team because the tiki-taka was there. The possession was there. The slowing it down and making Espanyol come out and try to win the ball back, especially once they went 1-0 down. And this is an Espanyol team that wanted to sit in a 5-4-1 low block and be very defensive. So Barcelona getting the goal, then sort of keeping possession, moving the ball, making Espanyol do some running. Espanyol do get those chances at the end, and I thought uh, Di Mata especially should have buried his late header in the 84th. But overall, I think very positive signs for Barcelona. Not a thing we've said a lot this season. And, and there was, there was, sorry, Ryan, there was a moment, in the, a, tri- a slightly trivial moment in the second half, but I found it quite funny that encapsulated how Xavi is going to change Barcelona when Mingesa was under a little bit of pressure and he clears the ball down the line. Xavi was absolutely yeah. furious with him and came to the touchline to let him know. Poor Mingesa because his relationship with Coman was slightly frosty and Coman probably would have berated him for not clearing the ball mm-hmm. down the line. So it feels like he can't really win. But he, he'll get used to that from Xavi and, and we won't see as much of that from Barcelona going forward, I think. Yeah. Just to touch on that, uh, that Demata header, Taylor, was that the worst free header attempt you've ever seen? It was pretty bad. It was not great. It was not great. <laughs> and at least he sort of like gets it down so there's that but yes that that should have been buried and i do think it's one of those moments when you just have a second or too long to think about how you should definitely be scoring this and maybe you take your focus off of actually scoring it yeah i agree with the positives that you gents have both brought up you know there was more of a press here there was better passing there was width he wants to play with wingers here doesn't he and for a team that didn't have what dembele fati and des wasn't here you know players who, who who may would bring more width. I think it was, this was pretty good. And, and Akimak, I think, was uh, was pretty good on the right side of the front three there. Um, one of eight Lebezia graduates, apparently, on the field for this one. I suppose, Graham, the, the, the issue that I was referring to is that is that last half an hour, 20 minutes, where it was seat of the pants stuff. Uh, is, mm-hmm. it, is it solely down to fitness? Is it solely down to there was a few inexperienced kids here mixed with some veterans and maybe... Wh- where does that fitness come from? It's just It's just match practice? Yeah, I think I think it is match practice. Um, and I think a large part of it is down to fitness because while there are questions over that centre-back pairing, particularly Eric Garcia, I frankly haven't seen a lot from Eric Garcia to justify the hype and justify why Barcelona chased him for a year. I think he's had a pretty poor start to to life at Barcelona. I didn't see a great deal from him for, for Spain at, at the Euros that suggested he was up to this level. So yes, there are doubts over individuals, but I guess Xavi would argue that all three chances for uh, Espanyol that they should score come from crosses. And so Xavi would argue with uh, better fitness levels, they don't get that chance because there's three players or two players crossing, uh, pressing the ball, pressing the crosser of the ball. So the cross doesn't just, it just doesn't come into the box in the first place. So mm. I think has he's, I mean, if you think about, um, Guardiola's Barcelona team they were always a little bit defensively suspect as well in terms of terms of their individual it was all about stopping the supply line and so I think that will be the the big difference going forward under Xavi absolutely and Barcelona hosting Benfica midweek in the Champions League then they're going to Villarreal after that one so plenty of challenges ahead for uh, Barcelona Taylor who are in sixth place sixth Woo! can you believe it Hmm. they're moving on up 
I I can and cannot simultaneously believe that they're in sixth place, and I do not think that they will stay there uh, because I think they're going up that table, and I think Xavi is going to get a lot more respect by the end of the season. Not that he didn't have plenty already, but oh, yeah. it does feel like maybe it's just it's just a he's not Kuman, and so you feel like okay, they've made a change, we're going to move forward with Kuman. It did seem like they were treading water until they found the co- the candidate they wanted, and it seems like it's always been Xavi. So. Now he's backing it up with the win, and Danny Alves coming in, and everything seems right with the world, and they're going to win the 2010 World Cup all over again. Yeah. Barcelona will. Barcelona good, will win the World Cup. Good time. They will indeed. Good times at Barcelona. All they've got to worry about is all their injuries and their hideous debt then. Yeah, there's that. There's that. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> all right, Barcelona fans, uh, feel encouraged by that one. Why don't we, gents, take our attention to uh, MLS Cup playoffs first round. We've seen four of the six first round matches in the bag. And as I hinted at the top of the show, all the home teams advance. Philadelphia Union won Red Bulls nil. Not a classic, Graham, but a dramatic ending and a nice winner. Yeah, I I um I actually only caught the last five minutes of this match. It was the only did. match that I, I I didn't. Yeah, I was going to say it was the only match that I didn't watch in full from from MLS over the weekend. But it, it seems by all accounts that I caught the good bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a pretty scrappy game up until that 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 last uh you know that late goal that's that stunning goal. Um, 122 minutes, I believe. So it's it's right at the end. You know, we were heading for a penalty shootout, and normally when you get that close to a penalty shootout, I am quite annoyed that you you don't get it if there's a late winner. But the the goal is so good that it, it almost made up for it. So yeah, not for the first time that so Metro appeared quite a lot on my timeline on Saturday night. <laughs> oh, Graham, I'll tell you what was in my timeline: the Guardians' picks for the MLS Cup. Um, uh-huh. There was a writer on there who picked the rebels as his dark horse. Was he a bit worried about them keeping receipts on him, so he had to pick them? <laughs> uh, I, I, I am scared to say anything in case the Red Bull admin are, are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned my lesson from uh, Mr. Lowry's uh, escapades. Indeed, indeed. Fear the uh, Red Bulls admin, Taylor. Uh, Ryan, yeah, I just wanted to to pause to talk about that the Glasnost hit for the winner because I'm, my jaw genuinely dropped. I was right there with Graham. I was starting to draw my penalty diagram, and then he <laughs> hits that, and it's such a good hit. But everything about it is so great, including that he it comes off of a free kick, I believe, that he makes a run towards the near post and is on the goal line when the ball gets recycled, or I think he's at the far post and the ball kind of drifts wide. He then hustles to get back on side but then ends up being at the top of the box he takes a uh, a headed clearance down off the chest hits the volley for those who haven't seen it but it's worth noting that i think he has to do this exactly as he does because yuba diara uh, is is stepping to him and if glasness doesn't take that chest sort of away from diara i think it's going right into him it's a tact- tackle nothing comes of it so he takes the chest away then hits that perfect volley the technique was there but the awareness and the, the kind of spatial recognition at that all so so good uh for the for the win for Glesnes and I'll also just enjoy seeing uh the big men at the back get the uh the laser goal always a fun yeah. time a cool slash cruel way to go in or out of a playoff game that goal was I'm kind of sad that the uh the penalty diagram only got half finished Taylor that's like that's a tragedy <laughs> in my book Oh, I didn't even draw it. I try oh. not to draw it. I just like had figured out where it was going to go because that's my level of OCD when it comes to note taking. Uh, but I, I'm okay that it didn't because I still at that point had many games to watch to be ready for this weekend review. But I do think though it is a kind of late goal, you feel bad for Red Bulls not getting the chance to fight back, not having that overtime session. 
it did feel like this is the way it was going, that the union being so aggressive in the way they were pressing from the jump, but especially as the game went on, you could see the legs starting to go for the Red Bulls, and it could have been more earlier. Corey Burke has a big miss that he uh, definitely should have finished, but doesn't. Goodman with a great tackle. Uh, I think Edwards absolutely saves the game after uh, Bedoya has a great ball in, and there were many opportunities there that I think Philly, uh, with just a little bit more sharpness, could have finished, or maybe it's a credit to the Red Bulls that they didn't. But either way, I have no qualms with the Union getting a 1-0 win. And they will face the winner of Nashville and Orlando in the conference semi. Uh, Sporting Kansas 3, Vancouver 1. Graham, did you catch this one? I did, because this was the Scotland Derby. Ah. So I made a point of, of, of watching this one. Obviously, Johnny Russell has been in sensational form for, for Sporting KC this season, and Ryan Gold has played a pretty important role in turning around the Whitecaps season. Obviously, Sporting KC come out in, in, on top in this one. And uh, yeah, I think it was a match they, they probably deserved to win. I thought Graham Zussi, who um, I ad- admittedly, I don't mm. watch as much MLS as Joe, because who does? Um, mm. But I, I haven't seen him play like this for, for a long time. So it, it was refreshing to see him being as, as influential as he was in this match. And I think it was this match was just also confirmation of what an asset um, Peter Vermees is in playoff soccer. He got his tactics right, recognised that a bit more of a direct style would, would work in this game. Um, and yeah, it paid dividends. However, Vancouver, I think they... You know, they were never really, in my book anyway, they were never really going to go that far in the playoffs. And they're probably already looking forward to next season, given the strides they've made since, um, as I say, gold coming in and the managerial change. So I think they could be, they could be a real force next season. I, I expect they, they could be actually even stronger next season, um, come playoffs time. Uh, I will continue the streak alive of agreeing with Graham on this one because uh, I thought uh, Sporting KC deserved winners, certainly. Really nice to see Graham Zussi being so influential uh, because he certainly he has the, the rip for the third goal. It's a great finish. I have Zussi smash with like nine A's, but <laughs> he is instrumental in the opener. He intercepts with a really gr- good aggressive read. He carries it forward. He spreads it wide to Soloy, uh, who pings the ball back across to the far post for Zussi, who then hits it a first-time centering pass uh, for Kiri Shelton. And that Zussi kind of picks that ball up maybe 20 yards from his own goal and finishes by getting the sliding-in assist. Uh, I think spoke volumes about his willingness to kind of do that dirty work, cover that distance. Still don't need to see him play for the U.S. men's national team. But I think uh, certainly an asset to Sporting KC and also agree with Graham. Peter Vermees definitely is as well. My favorite little thing about this game, I'm not sure if it was the fourth official or the AR on the coaching sideline, but that official was enormous. And I feel like if they're not refereeing, they're spending every single day in the gym. And it just felt like maybe an intentional thing because Peter Vermees can get worked up, can get aggressive. And there was one moment when he thought a call was wrong and he was yelling at that that uh, referee or that official. And they just were maybe a good foot taller than him and probably had 80 pounds of muscle on him. Vermees didn't back down, but I feel like that's what you have to have on the sidelines to deal with that presence that is Peter Vermees. MLS like, send in the big lad. We need it for this one. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. <laughs> uh, Sunday's games, we had NYCFC 2, Atlanta 0. Uh, Seinfeld popcorn, that's a shame gift for the team in Georgia there from a Charlotte fan. Um, <laughs> this game coming, Graham, from the baseball stadium with the camera view extracted by cables uh, so for no weird. particular reason. Um, NYCFC winning the right to play, uh, to lose to <laughs> New England Revolution in the conference <laughs> semis. Yeah, and and I'm still trying to work out what happened for the first goal. Uh, Castellanos obviously 
hitting the the volley down into the ground but then bouncing over Brad Guzan and and I'm I, I am still trying to I can't really work it out like does Brad Guzan get his angles wrong could he have could he have got back there to make a save it it was just a really weird goal a very Yankee yeah. uh, Yankee Stadium goal you could <laughs> it, say uh, it really was, it was, Graham, it was peculiar. sorry to jump in but I love that you brought about Yankee Stadium because my explanation for that goal I was equally confused I watched it again it is effectively a changeup do you know what a changeup is in baseball I know nothing about baseball, so Fair. no. <laughs> I know next to nothing about baseball, but I do know, or at least think, that if you have a pitcher who is uh, fastball dominant, if they're throwing 99 miles an hour and a batter starts to get used to that that fastball, you can throw a changeup, which is just a much slower pitch, like 80 miles an hour, 82. And if you're expecting that fastball, you're going to swing a second early. And I almost think that's what happened here, to continue the baseball analogy of that volley is hit by Castellanos and... Guzan is sliding over. You can see he's kind of got the goalkeeper positioning of it's going to be this rapid fire volley right at me. I've got to be able to react to it. And when it's slow motion like that, I think it just can freeze for a moment. And you're, it just is such an unexpected trajectory, unexpected velocity and speed to it. And the loft is weird. I'm not sure he could have gotten it, even if he didn't have people around him that would have uh, like basically not allowed that backpedal. But just the way I think he's set up to deal with a rapid fire volley and instead has to sort of react to this bouncing, looping thing definitely threw him off the way it would a batter uh but with a batter you can always kind of like pull one back in this case uh that was not the case for atlanta who quickly conceded another one yeah and i i am personally pleased for um for ronnie dyla who i don't yeah. think i've actually spoken about on this podcast but he's someone that i got on really well with during his time in scotland i i talked to him almost every week for for two years in my um previous job at, at, at scottish tv and not only is he a nice guy, he, I think he has some really good ideas on soccer. So I'm I'm really pleased to to see him doing well in in New York. And um, personally, I would I would quite like him to end up with MLS Cup in his hands because I think he was harshly treated in Scotland. He won back in the two seasons here. He won the title twice for Celtic and somehow was sacked. It was a little bit of a strange episode, but I like Ronnie a lot. And I I think uh, Atlanta fans won't be feel too hard done by this result. NYCFC fans are obviously happy to get uh, the 2-0 no win and advance to the next round. For Atlanta, for the season they've had with the kind of tumult around Gabriel say now they've got uh, Gonzalo Pineda in there who seems to have kind of sparked a response. I think it was bittersweet to have the season end the way it did, but to feel like maybe things are trending in the right direction, definitely a positive. Now the question becomes, can they hold on to the talent? Miles Robinson mooted uh, for a move away. Uh, there's a, a few other ones in there, including uh, George Bello and more likely Ezekiel Barco. And maybe just maybe Atlanta fans won't mind if uh, Franco gets uh, his his marching orders as well. He gets the second yellow card in this game. And it's been a while since I've seen a player be so visibly frustrated by getting pressed, but he kept giving the ball away or having the ball cut out. And you could see him just turn and like scream at the heavens. And if you are an Atlanta player who is looking to your kind of your your center back to be this stabilizing force, them like miscontrolling a pass or mishandling a pass and then mishitting a pass like within two seconds and then screaming about it is probably not the calming therapy you might have needed. Indeed. Sounds like Taylor's dog wants us to move on from that game. Portland that three. She Minnesota. is asleep. She is asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Portland three, Minnesota one. Uh, Portland coming back from behind in that one. Um, Graham, they'll face uh, the Western Conference winners, uh, Colorado Rapids in the next round. 
Yeah, I thought Portland were were good in this game. Um, I think pretty much everyone who won these first round matches deserved to win the, the, those first round matches, and Portland continue that theme. And in the, in the in the second half, it just seemed like Minnesota gave far too much space to to Blanco, particularly that third goal, which obviously he makes them pay, pay dearly with an incredible strike. It's totally ruthless from him, but. Yeah, it just felt like some of the, the tracking back from Minnesota was was not really there. They obviously go ahead in this game, so that's quite disappointing that they seem to drop off quite so dramatically. And obviously a big storyline from this match as well is uh, Gio Savaresi, who made quite a con- who's made quite a controversial call in, in sidelining uh, Diego Valeri, who's obviously been such a big figure for the Timbers, and he's kind of... The, the, the term I've seen bandied around a lot is handed the keys to Blanco, and that paid off big time in this match. Indeed. Taylor, any thoughts on this one? Uh, just that I enjoyed uh, Sebastian Blanco uh, getting the brace. I really enjoyed Laris Mabiala uh, getting the opener for Portland, the equalizer, uh, late in the first half because he had that bicycle. And the only thing that would have beaten a center back chest and volley from distance from uh, Glesnes would be a center back fully going on his bike to get a goal. It doesn't end up happening. It's cleared off the line. So I'm glad that Mabiala gets the equalizer. And then for Blanco to get the goals he does from the distance he goes with the kind of hits behind them that are there. It always reminds me of like when a defense, when a defense stands off that way, similar to like building a castle and then be like, haha, you'll never get past our walls. And then they just show up with catapults and suddenly you're in some trouble. And Blanco brought a double catapult to this one, Portland getting the win as a result. Indeed, we have Nashville, Orlando to come and also uh, the, Se- the Sounders, Rail Salt Lake and then the conference semis starting on Thanksgiving. Let's take a quick run around the houses of a few other leagues before we depart today, gents. League R, Leo Messi, remember him? Scored his first League R goal at the weekend in PSG's 3-1 win over Nantes. Um, that's his first goal in six League R matches. PSG, Graham, now 12 points clear of Ren in second place. Poch can't be happy with that. <laughs> yeah, not good enough. Get him out. Get him out. Get the him door. out. Get him to a, uh, a struggling club in the English <laughs> Premier League instead. Bundesliga. Sound the Bayern Munich lost the league game alarm. Sound it, Taylor. Bayern fell two one to relegation threat Augsburg on Friday night. That that alarm does not exist. Just it to should. be clear, it totally should. We should it's invent like, that. It's it's like via some outdated technology from thirty years ago because that's the last time we had to sound it. I'm going on Shark Tank to uh, to try and uh, pitch that one. Fine. Um, that win took Augsburg out of the relegation zone, ended Bayern's run of four straight league wins. Um, Bayern were missing a few starters, including Joshua Kimmich in that one due to COVID quarantine, but still a pretty unexpected one. The stats for you, Bayern's 79% possession, 18 shots to Augsburg's four. They still did not get any points. They're now only one point ahead of Borussia Dortmund, who beat Stuttgart 2-1, thanks to Makarois and an 85th-minute winner there, who knocked in a nice uh, Thorgenazar shot on the rebound. Daniel Marlin getting his first Bundesliga goal for Dortmund in that one too. And Stuttgart dropped right into Augsburg's uh, vacated relegation spot with that one. In Serie A, meanwhile, Napoli stayed top despite a 3-2 loss at Inter Milan. Uh, Chalnolu Perisic and Lautaro Martinez getting a great win. Did you catch that one, Graham? 
I did, I, I did, and I, I thought the action in Serie A this weekend was was incredible. And mm. actually, at this moment, it might be the most exciting league in in Europe because uh, there's another match that I think you're probably going to mention go on to mention now as well, which was equally as entertaining as the Napoli Inter one. Indeed, Fiorentina inflicting Milan's first defeat of the season, a pretty thrilling four three win there. Two goals from Zlatan couldn't save the Rossoneri from defeat there. I'm assuming you caught that one, Graham, because you catch every game. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. And uh, Zlatan, yeah, he he did his best to to rescue this one, but uh, Fiorentina and particularly their uh, their young striker uh, Vlahovic, who it seems like he's destined for a, a big money move to the Premier League or, yeah. or uh, somewhere. Anyway, um, he is very much one of the hottest properties in Italian football right now. It was a very enjoyable game. It was indeed. Uh, meanwhile, I saw an enjoyable game this weekend. Taylor, a few guys from my neighbourhood were playing a game. Um, at the Stadio Olimpico, so I went and checked it out. Lazio losing 2-0 to Juventus, uh, a brace of penalties from Leonardo Bonucci. Uh, Lazio didn't have Chiro Immobile in their lineup. Uh, they had their 19-match unbeaten run ended. Um, it was a pretty fun day. It was my first Serie A match I've attended in person. The Stadio Olimpico is a very impressive um, stadium, albeit with lots of Mussolini built fascist statues outside. That's another story. Also, Mussolini's grandson does play for Lazio at the moment. Another story, also. Um, but, uh, gents, I was in I was in the Curva Nord, which is like the famous Lazio stand behind the goals. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got to say, the view sucks because you're so far away from the field. <laughs> it's what it's an Olympic stadium, so there's a track. Or there was a track around it, so you're quite far away. But um, the one thing that Lazio did very well was the sort of pageantry before. Uh, the game. I thought it was better than anything I've seen in the Premier League and almost American in its sort of grandeur. When Lazio came on the field for their warm-ups, like they dipped the lights, they actually played Morning Glory by Oasis, which apparently the fans chose as their song for the team to come on, which was bizarre. Um, but then they... Uh, Lazio seemed to have like three or four songs that everybody knows the lyrics to and they sing them all. They had some dude come out with a guitar to play along with one of them as well. So it was a really good stadium experience. Um, Graham, have you ever seen a Serie A game? Have I ever seen... A Serie A uh, like, game in Italy? Like a, a, a live one? Yeah. Like being in... Um, I've been to the San Siro um, and that was that was pretty decent but it feels like what did what do you think of the because what do you think of the stadium like the Stadio Olimpico itself because I was going to I was going to tee you up with I hear you visited a crumbling ruin of a stadium that has no place in modern times and you also visited the Colosseum <laughs> at the weekend but from the sounds of it it, it it sounds like it maybe isn't as bad as I envisage it because I've never visited the Olympico yeah I did I, I did two the two big stadiums in Rome on the weekend as you mentioned the Colosseum um, which isn't used anymore for any kind of sporting activity unfortunately and the Stadio Olimpico um, the Olympico is very impressive, as I say, as a, as a spectacle. Like it's, it's set in these beautiful hills, and it has yeah. the Foro Italico right outside, which is they play the uh, tennis there, don't they? They play the tennis, the, uh, the Italian Open there on the clay courts, and it's it's a really beautiful grounds there. And you're right on the Tiber, um, but yeah, and the, the statues, albeit lots of them built by Mussolini, as I say, uh, they do look quite impressive. And it, um, but but I would say, Graham, the stadium is like it's like old Wembley in the fact that it feels quite old. Mm. But that's mm. typical of Rome because nothing's new in Rome. Um, so I, Ryan, I think it, how, how different was it? Like, what were the things that stood out to you as being different? Like, if you sort of opened your eyes and you were suddenly there, but you didn't know like what country were you, you were in, what would have given it away? Because there are those weird 
things that like certain countries eat certain things or don't yeah, have alcohol have out or you have tea instead of coffee, you have oh, coffee yeah. instead of tea. Like, were there any peculiarities or just like specific little things that stood out to you in that way? So firstly, it blew my mind that you can drink beer in the stadium. It's five yeah. euros a beer. And considering the maybe potential trouble that fans could cause there, I'm surprised that that was free flowing. And even like American style vendors walking up and down the aisles with beers like throughout the entire game. That was uh, interesting. Um, but I think the, the big thing, the eye-opening thing, Taylor, was the fans and the fan experience mm-hmm. and the, the way they, they set up the game, the way they supported the team all the way throughout. It's a very loud stadium when the fans get going. And um, they're waving. You know, they've, they've all got huge flags on the Côte Nord, and they're, they're waving them for the entire game. And it's just funny because I didn't have a horse in that race. It was, it was Lazio Juve uh, and Lazio, you know, should have done a lot better than they did. They didn't perform very well in this one. I don't think they had a shot on target in this game, in fact. But listening to the Italians sort of complain about... They, they assume that every decision for Juve is biased by the referee to Juve. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the fury from the stands was quite amusing as well, I would say. But not yeah, that everyone's biased for their team. And two penalties in this game as well. So yeah. <laughs> I can imagine they had a lot to complain about. So what, what from it, our view, of the, penalty, the first penalty, um, was, I think it was Cataldi brought, brought a Juve player down. Um, I forget who. But uh, everyone in, in the stand was like, that's outrageous. Juve always getting these outrageous calls. And when you look at it on TV, it was, it was completely a penalty. <laughs> Ryan, speaking of, of television, one of the things I enjoy about watching games in person is just that you have the freedom to watch who you want, when you want. Were mm. there players that stood out to you in that way? Were there players that maybe you haven't seen as much? Or maybe like the bigger names that we've talked about previously on the show who you just thought in person did sort of show their quality a bit more? Yeah, uh, Pellegrini I thought was excellent. And mm. uh, Juan Cuadrado just absolutely ran the show. And he moved um, he moved back to right back in this game as well due to an injury. Um, and him and Kuliszewski were just bossing it uh, th- throughout the whole game. So I was very impressed with it. But I, I, I've always been a Kuliszewski fan. But Juan Cuadrado, I was very, very impressed with his output. He just seemed to be in all the right places defensively and attacking-wise. Um, very, very impressed with him, I think, yeah. You were supposed to say Weston McKinney. Yeah, I was going to say, Ryan, really quickly, since (laughs) I'm editing today, could you just say Weston McKinney so I could delete everything you just said and put in Weston McKinney? Absolutely. I'll get you a clean one. Weston Uh, McKinney. Amazing. He did have a good game, though. He he was very good as well, to his credit. Um, And Juventus were, uh, I see, 2-0 flattered them. I think overall uh, on the balance of play, um, but yeah, their, their midfield was pretty good, and and, um, and Quadrado dropping back very impressive as well. I think that just about sums up my trip to uh, the Stadio Olimpico. I shall be returning. I think I've got to go see a Roma game now to try and uh, compare and contrast. Maybe that that might be my next plan. Um, why don't we talk about one more game, Taylor? Maybe one a bit closer to your heart in Istanbul. Galatasaray mm. one, Fenerbahce two. Meza Ozil getting an oh equaliser God. in this one. Miguel Crespo getting the 94th minute winner for Fener in this one. DeAndre Yedlin playing um, at right back for Galatasaray as well. I was disappointed, Taylor. Nine yellow cards and only one red in this one. Yeah, it feels it feels like they uh, they missed an opportunity to get even more. You always expect it to be the losing team in these games who concedes uh, the, the or gets the red card. In this case, it's Fener uh, who do uh, Tisserand, the center back, gets his second yellow in the 82nd minute. But uh, yeah, this this tends to be the way it goes in these big big games. Uh, they can be very dramatic and back and forth. They can be slightly cagier. And from the moments I saw of this one, definitely cagier. Definitely the. Uh, intensity of the rivalry is always a factor in the way the game is played. And in the end, uh, Fenerbahce with the win makes me uh, even more sad about the results from this weekend. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear it. Graham, what did you think of this one? 
Yeah, I, I saw someone on Twitter as this game was happening because I was I was watching another match, but I saw someone say that Ozil sprinted through on goal, uh-huh. and I had to see that for myself huh. because uh, I haven't seen Ozil run this fast for about ten years, and it's a pretty well taken finish as well when he gets here. He kind of waits for the goalkeeper to to make a move and and sort of scoops a finish over 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 him into the net. But it seemed to me like a lot of this game was was played in kind of stages of transition mm-hmm. admittedly i did only watch the extended highlights but every, every highlight seemed to be uh an end-to-end moment like where is the galatasaray defense for that ozil goal and why are they so high up the pitch and it just seemed like it was quite frantic which for a derby match is perhaps to be expected but that's better than you know we talked about the argentina brazil match the old firmification of games where that just doesn't happen at all and everything is stodgy in the center of the pitch i would rather an end-to-end frantic mess than uh, than an old firm match <laughs> frankly fair enough all right gents i think we've probably kept our listener long enough for this episode we got a lot packed in today and like meza Ozil, we've moved at a mighty fast pace on this episode uh graham thank you so much for watching a billion games this weekend for us and for all your uh, <laughs> contributions no problem at all ryan it's good fun it was indeed taylor wasn't it fun it was. I will mourn the day that we don't have Fernando Muslera in goal for Galatasaray. That feels like the ever-present thing we can set our oh, watches yeah. to. So if and when he ever retires, I really hope it's an if and he never does, it will be a sad day. That is my final note for the weekend, and I very much enjoyed uh, covering all of the many games and leagues that we covered, even if uh, I ended up having to watch a lot of soccer from yesterday afternoon until uh, t- like basically this morning. Hey, could be worse. Could be worse, Tay-Tay. Anyway, listen up. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye!